Amen. I just invite you, as you're watching from home, would you please just turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking today at verses uh, 7 to 18 to the end of the chapter. So if you would, just go ahead and take out your Bibles at the current time and find your way to uh, 2 Corinthians. Um, We're going to be working our way through that passage. Before we jump in, though, I just invite you, if you would, uh, bow with me in prayer and ask that the Lord would help you uh, to see the truth of this text this morning. We want to just pause and ask the Spirit to illuminate the passage and begin working in our hearts uh, so that we can fully appreciate all that God is trying to say to us here in this text, and further that God would work through this text by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to give us the strength and to give us the guidance that we need to face tomorrow. So I just invite you to turn with me now to that passage, and would you bow with me as we pray? Uh, Father in heaven, we ask God that as we reflect on the trials that the Apostle Paul faced here, as he's writing to the church at Corinth and sharing with them the different struggles and the persecution and all the opposition that he faced as he sought to live his life for you, I pray, God, that we would simultaneously be encouraged and reminded that even in the midst of all the difficulties that we are facing at the current time, there are still greater difficulties that await us. And we pray, Lord, that as we understand that truth, that we would draw encouragement from the Spirit speaking to us here in Second Corinthians. Lord, I pray for First Baptist Church this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would drive it home into our hearts, that as we walk hand in hand, with your son, that we would be convinced that whatever lies ahead of us, whatever difficulties we experience, we may be struck down, Lord, but never crushed. We will be pursued, but Lord, we will never be forsaken by you. And I just pray, Father, that you would encourage First Baptist Church this morning from this particular text. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The news, if you've been watching, is largely bad and getting worse. I woke up yesterday morning to trace the headlines to find out what the most recent developments were with regards to the global pandemic of coronavirus, the spread of COVID-19. And I woke up to the to appreciate the fact that in the United States, it took nearly a month for the death rate to hit 1,000, but only a few days after that for it to hit 2,000. And there are now 2,000 different individuals and more dying every day. We see in other parts of the world that the death count is rising, that more and more individuals are, are being infected. The pandemic is sweeping across Europe. It is impacting Italy. You're familiar with Italy and just the absolute atrocious situation that is happening there. We hear of other accounts in France and Spain. Helsinki, the capital of Finland, is so, so infected with the plague that they took the extraordinary step yesterday to cut off all bridges, to shut down all roads, and to essentially put the capital of Finland, Helsinki, under quarantine. No one is now allowed in or out. President Trump yesterday, uh, as he was speaking to news reporters, made the comment that he was considering putting the state of New York and New Jersey under quarantine. And of course, as he's considering this, and as millions of Americans are hearing him speak about considering this, 
it instilled panic in the populations of those states, and there was a rush for the border to to flee from those states, requiring a further clarification from the White House later in the day that there would not be a quarantine to try and alleviate some of those fears. We read accounts of different individuals in different parts of the world who are grieving, who are, who are heartbroken and crushed over the loss of loved ones, heartbroken and crushed because they can't even visit with their loved ones. And in the midst of all of these trials, we are still called as a church to be salt and light in this world. Jesus, the first time he spoke of the church in the Gospel of Matthew in verse 16, he said to Peter, Behold, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Which brings us to the current moment in which churches all across North America, indeed all across the world, are facing the hardships of this virus the same as anyone else. And as a result of this outbreak of the coronavirus, we are experiencing the heartbreak of not being able to gather together. And it's not just our gathering here, but Christians all over the world, you and me included, we aren't able just to visit with each other apart from the normal church gathering. We're not able to just go out into the streets and into the roads and visit like we used to. This morning, as I prayed and thought all week long about what it is that the Lord needed to say to us this morning, this morning I'd like to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians. This text will give us encouragement. Verse 16 in particular. But we'll begin in verse 7. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, not to the headlines, not to the news reports, not to the body counts and the the pandemic and the sweep of the pandemic, as we don't look at those things, but as we look at the things that we cannot see, we look to those things. And it is the things that are seen which are transient, and the things which are unseen which are 
eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.16, verse 16 in particular, expresses something that everybody wants to experience. Paul says we don't lose heart. We're not discouraged. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. In this passage, there's something here which we all want, and at the same time, there's something here which none of us really want. What nobody wants The thing he begins with is the truth that our body, our lives are described in verse 7 as being a a clay jar. He makes the statement, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And he's using that image to illustrate for us that our lives, our bodies are easily broken. We want to have heaven and, and earth. We want to have both. We love what he says at the end of the passage that we're being renewed day by day on the inner on the inner man, but we cringe when he points out to us that as we're being renewed on the inside, we're still wasting away on the outside. We especially don't want to be told that something as invisible and weightless as a vapor in the wind could be our ultimate undoing. And yet, All the world around us is now being reminded that something as insignificant and small as a vapor in the wind is reminding us that our lives are but a mist. It takes a mist to remind us that we are a mist. But we are a mist held in the Lord's hands. Though our outer self is wasting away, the thing which we desperately need to hear this morning, on the other side of the equation is that we are being renewed on the inside. And this is what everybody wants. Nobody is tuning into this live stream right now saying, well, gee golly, I really hope Pastor Josh preaches a sermon that just discourages me and breaks me down and crushes me. No, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for God to speak to our hearts to encourage us. That's what we want. And this text is going to give it to us. But we need to be reminded of the fact that there are two sides to this passage. Jars of clay is the first side. It's the first column. And the other column, the other side, is an eternal weight of glory. That's what I want us to look at. Focus in for just a moment on verse 16. The word so at the beginning of verse 16 and the word for at the beginning of verse 17 are crucial. Why is it that they're so crucial? Well, I want you to just take for a moment and reflect on, uh, perhaps you're familiar with the Brandenburg Gate. It's this famous, uh, not archaeological, it's this famous um, architectural structure in Berlin, in Germany. It's got a series of columns that support a grand table, and on the top of this table there is a magnificent sculpture of a, a rider in a chariot, and there are four horses, and it's dashing forward victoriously. And so that's the picture I want you to have in this morning, this morning in your mind. Uh, that that truth of of verse sixteen, it sits like that victorious rider in that chariot. It sits on that tabletop. It sits elevated and lifted up, but it is supported by two columns. Verse 16, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. That's what we all want this morning. We want to be able to say that. We want to be able to know it. We want to be able to mean it, to really mean it. Verse 16, we don't lose heart. We are not discouraged. We are, in fact, being renewed day by day. The word so at the front of that verse means that Paul has, 
he's, he's drawing a conclusion, and it comes from things that he has said previously. So that's what that means. This is true, and this is true, and this is true in verses 7 to 15. And so we don't lose heart. Therefore, we are being renewed day by day. So the first uh, column, the first pillar in this truth that we're being renewed by day by day is found in verses 7 to 15. And that, that should get our attention. We need to look at that. If we're going to have that renewal from the Lord, if we're going to be encouraged, if we're going to be renewed on the inner man, then we need to go back and look at what Paul has said in those previous verses. But there's another column. The word for at the beginning of verse 17 means that Paul is also about to say some things that relate back to verse 16. He says, we don't lose heart. We're being renewed day by day for or because this is true and this is true and this is true. So the second pillar of this Brandenburg gate, this second pillar is found on the other side of the verse in the verses that follow in verses 17 to 18. So what I want you to see is verse 16 This is what we want, but before it is a pillar that upholds it, which comes in verses 7 to 15, and what comes after verse 16 and verses 17 18 is that second pillar. So if we're going to be renewed, if we're going to have that encouragement of renewal in the inner man, despite whatever is happening in the world around us, we need to look at those two columns, those two pillars that uphold that glorious truth that is found in verse 16. But first, one brief observation before we jump into all of that. You say, Pastor Josh, the reality is, whatever you're going to look at in terms of the grammar and the structure of this passage, we're hurting right now. Indeed, some of you may have relatives that are, in fact, sick. This last week, several of you wrote to me saying, I I have a cousin or I have an aunt or an uncle that has coronavirus. And you're scared. Paul was living in circumstances different than ours, but circumstances which produced the same sort of an emotional response. He was also living in the midst of real suffering, real hardship, real persecution. He wasn't facing a disease. He wasn't facing pestilence like you and I are. He was facing persecution. He was facing religious opposition to the gospel the heartache and the suffering that we experience was, is the result of something that is unknown. We can't see where this virus is, so we're afraid. But what Paul was experiencing was far worse. He could see exactly what was coming for him, and he was being renewed day by day. Now, the reason for this is because there are four reasons, particularly in the last section, verses 17 and 18, Four reasons that he looked at, which I want you to look at this morning. The first was he considered whatever he was going through, but a momentary affliction. Verse 17, he says, for this momentary light affliction. That's how he begins. It doesn't mean that this affliction lasts 60 seconds. It doesn't mean that it lasts for a couple of hours or even a week. It doesn't mean that he spends two or three weeks in the hospital. He is going to be persecuted throughout the, the entirety of his apostolic career. And indeed, he's going to be executed at the end. What this means then, from his perspective, is that the totality of his life is going to be a life that experiences affliction. It's going to be a life that experiences hardship and difficulty. But when that life is, 
is considered from the viewpoint of eternity, he says it's just for a moment. The word literally means present, these present afflictions. And the afflictions that he is experiencing will not outlive his life, and the, ex- the afflictions that you and I are experiencing will not also outlive our lives. This will come to an end. It is but for a moment. So we should not lose heart thinking this is how it will be forever because eternity is not marked by coronavirus. It is marked not by corona, but by Christ. So we can rejoice in that fact. Whatever tomorrow brings or whatever next week brings, whomever may get sick, whatever might happen, the difficulties and the hardships we face here and now, they are but momentary. They will end sooner or later. We're not sure when, but they will end. Second reason. Second reason. Paul says, Light affliction. You're at home. Maybe you don't have enough toilet paper. You should. We called everybody in the church this week. We've got some stockpot. Well, I shouldn't say that on the internet. (laughs) We love the members of our church. If you're tuning in, we love you too. There is nothing here for you. We can help bless you, though. If you want to call the church, we can talk. We are looking after the members of our church. I digress. This is a light affliction. You're at home. You don't have enough toilet paper. It may have been a couple of days since you ran out to the grocery store and got some milk. Whatever the hardship is that you're facing, it absolutely pales in this moment compared to what the Apostle Paul was facing. He makes the statement, light affliction. Again, verse 17, for this momentary light affliction. This isn't a judgment of comfortable, this isn't the judgment of our comfortable modern Canadian experience. This is Paul's own judgment. This is his perspective of his situation. He hadn't forgotten what had actually happened to him. As he's writing this passage, he, he is very much so aware of what he's about to say just a little bit further on in this letter. In verse 11, he says, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, whipped with a cord 39 times, and that event happened five separate times in his life. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times shipwrecked in the ocean, floating in the sea. He goes on, he says, night and day he has spent time in the deep of the waters. He goes on, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false believers. He says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. I have been in hunger and thirst. I have often been without food. I have been in cold. I have been in exposure. Paul knows all of that. That is about to be written just a few chapters later, and all of that is surely on his mind, and yet he still somehow has the ability to say to the church at Corinth, these afflictions are momentary. They will come to an end, and they are light. In light of all of that, how ought we to regard the fact that we may only have two or three rolls of toilet paper left at home? These are small, small difficulties. Apart from external things, he goes on to say, 
There is upon me daily the pressure of my concern and my anxiety for all the churches. When Paul says his afflictions are light, he's not saying that they are painless. Surely he's got scars. Surely he woke up morning after morning from being stoned or from being whipped, and he felt the sting of the cuts. He felt the ache of the bruises. He's not telling you that these are painless trivialities. No, no, that's not what he means. He means that compared to what is coming, they are nothing. That's what he's getting at. Compared to the weight of glory that is coming to him, when you compare it to that, they are nothing. He makes the statement in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul is able to say here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that he doesn't lose heart because whatever afflictions he's facing, they are momentary and they are light. So light, in fact, that it isn't even able to put it in the same ledger, in the same system of accounting as what is required to comprehend the glory that God is going to give to us in all of eternity. Number three, let's talk about that glory, shall we? Paul is looking to an eternal weight of glory. He doesn't lose heart over his afflictions, and he goes further to say that his affliction is actually producing for Paul an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Verse 17, again, he says, this momentary light affliction is preparing, he uses that word preparing, you might also translate it producing, it is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What is coming to Paul is not momentary. The afflictions he's facing are momentary, but what is coming is eternal. It's not light, it's not trivial, the way he looks at the things he is suffering, It is weighty. It has real mass and real substance. It's not affliction. It's glory that he has his eyes focused on, the glory of heaven. And it's beyond all comprehension. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't need to understand it. In fact, the the reality that he can't wrap his mind around it is so, so rewarding to him. He accepts it by faith. And that is how he's able to look at what he's experiencing and to consider it as trivial, as light, as momentary. Eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. He's getting ready to say that verse just a few chapters down the road as well. The point is not that the afflictions merely precede the glory. It's not that Paul just has to go through this to get to what's next. No, no, no. The afflictions help to produce the glory. Look at the verse. Look at what it says. This momentary light affliction is preparing for us or producing for us an eternal weight of glory. There's a real connection, church, between the things we go through and the glory that we will experience when we see Jesus face to face. How we endure this hardship the way that our hearts respond to what we're going through, how we allow it to shape us and mold us and deepen us in our faith with Christ directly bears on how much we will be able to enjoy and appreciate the fullness of the glory of God in the ages to come. That's what the text is saying. 
Not one moment of patient pain that we endure in this life is going to be wasted by God or forgotten. He sees it all. He sent it to us. And he intends for us to be shaped and molded and to respond to it in such a way that we will behold greater things to come. It is preparatory. The same way that a student goes through elementary school on his way to high school. The same way that anybody goes through university on their way to a degree as they're getting ready for whatever career lies ahead. For all these troubles, Paul says, they are producing for him an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And number four, this unseen eternal glory is going to come. Paul doesn't lose heart, for he sets his mind on the fact that it is coming. Verse 18, he says, We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. God might offer you all the glory in the universe to keep you from losing heart and to renew your soul day by day. But if you never look at it, nothing is going to change in your present circumstances. He says we look at these things that are going to come. And so what we need to do is look as well. Look, church, your afflictions are momentary. Look, church, your afflictions are light. Look, church, your afflictions will not have the last word. You will rise from the dead with Jesus and with the rest of the church of God, and you will live in the joy of paradise forever and ever. Look at that. And then look beyond that. Look beyond that. These afflictions are producing for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Look and focus at those things. We got to look at it. We got to meditate on it. We have to treasure those truths in our hearts every day, especially as we run to listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry or any of the other news media pundits and commentators who warn us that it is doom and gloom and we have half a mind to believe them because indeed the scriptures promise us that there is a coming tribulation. But even if all of those things are true, those are not the things we look at. We don't look at those things. We look at the resurrection and the glory that is going to be coming. That's the first pillar that upholds the Brandenburg Gate of this glorious truth of being renewed on the inside day by day. What's the second, pir- pir- what's the second pillar or the second column? Look back now to verse 7. Paul says, okay, we got this treasure in jars of clay, earthenware jars, okay? These are fragile things. The, jar, the, cl- the clay jar in the first century was a disposable item. It was cheap, it was inexpensive to make, and they often were used to transport water, to haul garbage around, all that sort of stuff. They often wore down as a result of water and other things being in them. They commonly broke. They were not expensive. It wasn't like a, a vessel made out of gold or a vessel made out of silver. In fact, as we look at this metaphor that Paul is using to describe our life, it would behoove us to draw an analogy, a parallel, between the first century when he writes this text and the 21st century. 21st century item of similar worth and value to an earthenware jar or a clay jar would be a garbage sack. 
It's something that we use, we quickly dispose of, we get rid of it. It is not something of incredible value. Of course, it has some utility to it. We use it to collect garbage. We can put other things in it. But at the end of the day, it is not something we keep. It is not something we hold on to. And what Paul says in verse 7 is that we have a treasure in jars of clay. And he goes on in verses 8 and following to draw forth this amazing paradox that it is these jars of clay, these cheap, disposable uh, throw them away, not important clay jars that hold a very powerful treasure. And that treasure is so rich that it sustains us throughout our days. Verse 8, he goes on to spell out a couple of ways in which it has sustained him and a couple of ways in which we can expect it to sustain us. Namely, that in the weakness, in the uh, the, the fragility of these clay jars, in their weakness, they invite strength. The paradoxes here that we're about to look at are autobiographical of the Apostle Paul, for sure, but at the same time, they ought to touch on the experience of every Christian, including you, including me. First, verse 8, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. The earthen vessel of Paul's life was, in fact, afflicted in the radical sense of being pressured, which is best represented by the word squeezed. He was constantly being squeezed. His pressured weakness, though, was always met, always met with God's power. And he was, as he goes on to say, not crushed. So he was struck down or he was squeezed, but he was never ultimately crushed. Merrill Tenney, Dr. Merrill Tenney, in his commentary, in his commentary on this particular pa- passage, expresses it best with his own translation. He says, we are squeezed, but not squashed. And that's a wonderful word, I'll play on words, and, and I love that translation because it draws out some of the beauty of the Greek text. There is a, a rhyme within the Greek text that isn't fully captured by most English translations, but I do think Dr. Tenney captures it well. We're squeezed, but not squashed. That's one way of looking at it. The second thing he says in verse 8, he says, we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. In Greek, these words, again, they form a rhyming wordplay, and the second part of the wordplay, driven to despair, intensifies the significance of the first wordplay. Various attempts have been made to capture it in English. Uh, Tasker says, at a loss, but not a loss. Plummer says, in despondency, yet not in despair. Hughes says, confused, but not confounded. Again, I think Dr. Tenney has it best, bewildered, but not befuddled. Bewildered, but not befuddled. Paul had, as you and I have, a limited capacity for thinking about things. A limited capacity for emotions over different things that were happening in his life. Just like you and me, He replaced the circumstances of his day when he lays down at night. He worries about what's going to come tomorrow, just like you and me do. And just like all of us, he is sort of looking at his life as though he's a chess player and he's plotting his moves in the event that this happens. This is how I'm going to move. This is how I'm going to respond. In the event that some other situation happens, I'm going to move this piece instead. I'm going to do that instead. And what he says here in this passage is that at the end of the day, things are going to happen that are beyond his control. He's not going to be anticipating what those things are, it is going to drive him to be puzzled, to be perplexed, or to 
use Tenney's translation, to be wildered, to be bewildered, but not ultimately befuddled. He is not going to despair even though he doesn't know what's going to happen. Finite as Paul's intellect was when he was confronted with the difficulties and the losses that he faced, he was never ultimately in despair. It was said of Napoleon that he had an unquestioned magic for victory, but he had absolutely no technique for defeat. The great general, Napoleon, riding his beautiful mount at Austerlitz, became the despairing horseman that slouched in retreat from Moscow. Unlike Napoleon, the apostle Paul had a wonderful technique for defeat in that whatever happened, he knew it was not his ultimate defeat. That in every situation, whether the gospel that he was preaching forth was hailed and praised and accepted and believed, or whether the gospel that he preached forth resulted in his being beaten or stoned or people not responding to it the way that he thought they might, in all things he knew that he was not beaten because God was glorified. Puzzled, not what he expected, bewildered, but not befuddled. And the same is true for us. The third thing, verse 9, persecuted, but not forsaken. Paul knew what it was to be persecuted. The word literally means to be pursued, to be hunted down, to be chased. And this is his life. He, he is being chased after, persecuted. And even though that was true, he knew that God was always with him, that God was in his corner, that offered no assurances about what was going to happen in the here and now with the clay jar, but it gave him everything he needed to pursue through the moment to the glory of God. He knew whatever tomorrow might bring, it did not compare with what God was bringing in eternity. That hope that good news that God was with him, sustained him. Jesus, as he hung on the cross, cried out, Lama, Lama, Sabachthani. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew, Jesus knew, that even though he was forsaken of God in that moment, hanging on the cross, that God would not abandon his soul to the grave forever. Time and again, he had reassured his disciples, I will be crucified, but on the third day, I will rise from the grave. And so even in those darkest moments in which God was, as Luther says, forsaken of God, mystery, how can it be? God forsaken of God. As Jesus was in that moment, he knew whatever the experience of darkness was for that day, there would be a glorious Easter coming on Sunday. And his hope was in that. And the fourth thing that Paul says here, these, these different paradoxes, these different parallels, they reach their crescendo in this final statement. Struck down, but not destroyed. Struck down means to be struck down by a weapon, to be whacked as it were. Paul had been whacked time and again, whether from the cords that whipped him or the stones that hit him. 
but he was not destroyed. Rather, he was quickly back on his feet. We know of one of these events. We preached through it not too long ago in the book of Acts as Paul uh, was stoned in Lystra. He was hunted down and he was ritually stoned, which was a ghastly and a cruel event, capped all by his body being dragged outside of the city and left there to rot. They assumed that he was dead. But to the astonishment of his disciples, he just sprang right back up again and he led them back into the city of Lystra where they had just stoned him. Again, Dr. Tenney's rendering of this passage, I think, is the best. Knocked down, but not knocked out. And that describes the Apostle Paul. Incredible strength is had in the midst of total weakness. You can catch the intensity of Paul's paradoxes just by stacking the sufferings he endured in the earthen vessel of his body. Squeezed, bewildered, pursued, knocked down. What abject weakness. What abject weakness. He doesn't stand a prayer against all that is facing him. But he did not count in his own strength. He did not say, I can do this. I just need to grit my teeth and bear it, pull myself up by my bootstraps. Paul isn't saying, I just need to be the man here in this situation. He says in all of those things, he was totally weak, totally powerless. He had accepted his weakness and trusted in the midst of all of that, that God was in control of his life, that his days had been numbered and that his steps would be planned and purposed by the Lord. That's the truth that we need to have today. It isn't that we're looking to tap into God's power to make us powerful. We're tapping into God's power to be renewed, that his power would work despite whatever hardships, whatever difficulties, whatever diseases, or whatever ultimate fate any of us may face. We're trusting in the Lord. Paul remained an earthen pot and a cracked pot at that. And his crumbling flesh, though, was used to allow the power of God to shine forth in his weakness. It was his weakness, actually, that allowed his power, God's power, to shine forth so brightly. And that is the surprise of it all. That however broken we become, we still see God working. Look at verse 12. Paul concludes this astonishing paragraph with an unexpected twist. Because by the way Paul has been structuring his thought, we would expect him to conclude this statement with something like this. So death is at work in us, but life is also at work in us. That's what you'd expect him to say. But that's not what he actually says. He says, so death is at work in us, but life is at work in us. You. This is, of course, the great principle of the cross. Jesus dies that others may live. And this is being lived out by the Apostle Paul. He is giving his life so that others can live. That is what he is saying. Jesus makes this statement in John chapter 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
Christ's teaching, Paul's example, instructs us in this current moment. We are renewed when we focus our gaze on eternity. And we see God's power at work in our circumstances when, no matter what happens to us, no matter how we're able to understand it or not understand it, as the case may be, we continue to trust in God and we continue to seek to live every moment for his glory and we are allowed the privilege of seeing the power of God work around us and God is working through us, sustaining us. That's the promise we have from this passage. When George Mueller, the pastor and and the provider for thousands of orphans, was asked what his secret was, he hung his head and said, what's your secret for being able to do all these things that you're doing? George Mueller, when he was asked that question, he hung his head and he said, well, there was a day when I died. And then he hung his head a little lower And he said, a day when I died to George Mueller. George Mueller had to release all of his expectations for whatever tomorrow might be. And he had to trust the Lord day by day, even for simple things. He was always able to meet the needs of the orphans, to carry the burdens and the struggles of the day, not because he had any confidence in his own ability to plan or to make it work, because he was continuing to trust in Christ. It's humbling to say to ourselves that we are clay pots, and it is difficult to accept the situation as it currently is. But if we would fix our eyes on the glory that is to come, we need to accept that God is using these circumstances to prepare us through humbling us through stripping from our hands all the tools that we commonly refer to, that we use, that we depend upon to look after ourselves. And instead, we have to cast the entirety of who we are into God's hands and to trust him with today and tomorrow. It is our confidence in Christ and the assurance that we have in the cross, that is our treasure. And that is what the world needs to see. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray, God, that as we look to the things that are not seen, that our perspective of these current afflictions would be corrected. God, at whatever experiences we face, we tend to interpret them according to our own wisdom And I pray, Father, that you would strip that from us, that we would look at our situation and our experiences through the lens of Scripture, that we would see these afflictions as momentary, as light, as nothing compared to the glory that we have in the cross, in your Son, in the name of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, as we go, each of us, away from our computers and our smartphones and our tablets, to carry on, that we would be able to live with a joy despite the circumstances that is found not in any false assurance that no harm will come to us, but ultimately that whatever may come to us, it is well with our souls because we have trusted in the cross and we have hoped in Christ. God, let that truth shine forth 
let that treasure gleam brightly before the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.